the unstructured time in this kind of retreat format is really more the form of practice in, in many of the monasteries in Thailand and in Asia, where you don't, the form of practice there isn't such that you have a very strict schedule of sitting and walking and sitting and walking and instructions and discussion groups. Uh, and things like that, but rather you're very much left on your own to practice. The motivation really has to come from within yourself. Like in the early morning, we would meditate a little while together, but mostly we'd be, we would be doing chanting. And then um, we'd have our meal together, but then in the afternoon, it was all left up to ourselves as to how much practice we were going to do. And then in the evening, there would be a little bit of group meditation or a, uh, some, a talk or instructions by the teacher, but it was really left to you to develop your meditation practice. Essentially, you could meditate or not. And there was a lot of people who didn't meditate, who kind of went about the monastic life in different ways. And there was nobody pushing you and saying, you have to practice it, you have to sit. It's like you had to find the motivation inside of yourself to do that. And that was a difficult thing to do, to find that kind of self-motivation to practice. It can be hard to do that. Sometimes it's easier if we have a, a schedule and say, okay, be in the meditation hall at this time. You know, and this period is for walking meditation. And that's very helpful in the beginning, but ultimately, ultimately we come to leaving the retreat center and going off back to our daily life situation and not having that kind of structure. And where do we find um, effort and motivation in our practice? Part of talking about effort and motivation is the question, what brings us to meditation? What brings us to a retreat situation such as this? Most frequently, and as people the other evening were going around and talking about why they're here, it's because we feel as though there's something in life besides just our body, just our mind, just making a living, just the relationships around us, that there's something more to life, that there is the life of the spirit, and that is a very strong motivating <laughs> factor, of course, that brings people um, to a meditation retreat such as this. Another one is pain and suffering in one's life. That if we experience enough pain and suffering, we get the message that we have to do something about this. That we can't go on living our life in so much fear or in so much negativity or feeling so much jealousy or greed that we have to find a way out of the suffering. Another motivating factor is that we desire to want to live better, to live a life that in which we're, we understand more about ourselves and about the people who we're in relationship with. 
want to understand more how to um, come to deeper love and compassion and forgiveness in ourselves. And all of these different kinds of forces is what brings us more into a conscious awareness of our spiritual life. And meditation becomes a way of deepening the understanding of our spiritual nature and coming, accessing these qualities within ourselves, which, as Aaron was speaking about last evening, are there inside of ourselves already. It's just that our fear, our conditioned mind, our negativity, the reactive patterning of our life, the unclarity of our seeing, all of this, it blocks us, it prevents us from experiencing more deeply our spiritual nature and all that love and forgiveness and compassion and the natural wisdom that's inside of us, that's just waiting to be tapped into. And each of us has a conscious, very conscious recognition of that. We all know what that love is and that forgiveness and the compassion and that wisdom. It's, it's deep down inside of us. And we know it's there. It's just a, how can I get to it? How can I access it? And we start to become more and more conscious of this process. And effort, right? Effort becomes an important aspect of spiritual life to look at. So let me talk about different kinds of effort. When effort is effort that's motivated by inspiration, we become inspired in some way. Become inspired by a teaching, by something that we read in a book. I'm presently reading a book by Sogyal Rinpoche, the Tibetan book of the living and dying. And it's a wonderful book. And it, the first 150 pages, it's a quite a long book, the first 150 pages details how Sogyal Rinpoche met his guru, his master, the different teachers that he had, how he lived in the monasteries in Tibet, how his practice developed. And a lot of it was a lot of how his spiritual path unfolded was just through the inspiration of his guru and, and his teachers and the different lamas that he, that he lived with. Um, it gets us started. It kind of gets us jump-started into the spiritual life. We want to make an effort when we meet somebody who has understood the Dharma, the Dharma being the truth, being understanding how things are in a deep way, somebody who sees things very clearly, that when you read or you speak or you meet with somebody who has that kind of understanding or open-heartedness of love, who demonstrates compassion and kindness and patience, all these qualities which we really want to, to experience within ourselves, which are there inside of ourselves, but they become a mirror, so to speak, by someone who is outside of us, who we make contact with. When I was in Asia, I was visiting a temple in the north of Thailand. And I was really searching for something, because I was suffering a lot. 
and I needed some help, and I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. There was just no way. And I picked up a book by one of my teachers, Ajahn Buddhadasa, called Handbook for Mankind. And the book was about the Buddha's teaching, and he talked about the Four Noble Truths, you know, how suffering exists in life, how suffering arises. The path, the Eightfold Path that I just spoke of, that if we practice and if we follow will lead us towards the cessation of suffering. You know, these, these truths laid out were, had a, a deep impact upon me and the teachings themselves. And with the different teachers that I met in Thailand and meeting Barbara and meeting Aaron, um, the many Western people who I met in Asia, the thing that helped in as far as motivation was the inspiration of their lives and who they were and how dedicated they were to their practice, to living the spiritual life. None of them were saints and none of them were perfect. Like, there's nobody you're going to find in human form is going to be perfect. But it's rather that their intent to live as purely as possible, you know, to, in a very conscious way, or as conscious a way as possible, to open more deeply to understanding and to compassion and to love, that that inspiration becomes a very, very strong motivating force. And I think that's what you find a lot in, in spiritual community and coming together in a retreat situation like this is people of a like mind who are kind of moving in the same direction. It's not that people in our society aren't moving in the same direction that we're moving on, but it, it's a little bit more condensed in this kind of situation where when we talk about suffering and pain or fear or jealousy, that we, we all know what that means. And at the same time that we understand what, it, what, what these things are, there's also within ourselves a desire to really deeply understand the foundation and the basis for what creates this kind of pain and suffering in our life, which is the second kind of effort. It's effort that's motivated by pain and by suffering. When I first thought of ordaining as a monk, I, looked, I was looking at my life and saying, if I don't find some salvation in meditation, I don't think that I'll ever be happy or ever find a sense of peace in my life. At that time, there was so much confusion, there was so much anger, there was so much, there was so much pain that I really didn't have a choice but to put myself in a situation, in a monastic kind of situation, in which I was going to have to look at it all the time. It was kind of like the end of the line type of feeling. Like, it's either this or it's nothing. And in a way, that makes things easier, because you see, 
It's either I do this fully and really open my heart to it, or life is going to be, continue to be a very, very rocky road. This may not be the same with what all of you feel about it. You may not have the force of such deep suffering and pain in your life that creates that movement and that desire and that effort. Some of you are shaking your head and saying, yes, I know what you mean, John. I feel the same thing, you know. And I'm tired of it. You know, I'm really tired of going through these same patterns over and over and getting caught in my fear, in my negativity, in my selfishness, in my greed, all of those things. You know, and, and that in itself becomes the motivating effort force to kind of want to move out of it. As Aaron has said many times, it's not pain that liberates us or suffering that liberates us, but it opens our eyes. It says, okay, you need to pay attention. You need to pay attention to what's going on inside. It comes like that little alarm that rings inside of our heart that says, ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling, pay attention. What's happening now? You know, what direction are you moving in right now? And that kind of motivation to make effort and practice can sustain itself for quite a long time, as long as the pain lasts. But what happens when the pain is gone, or when the suffering really starts to subside? Then where does the effort for practice come from? Where is the motivation for practice coming from? It's like you might find for yourself in being in psychotherapy or in your interest in meditation, that when things are difficult and painful, there is that effort and motivation and desire to practice. But as soon as that starts to fall away and you feel okay and everything's going all right in life, stop going to counseling, you know, or stop sitting. And it's because the, the, the effort and practice is based by just that suffering and and the pain. That's the motivating force. And is when that starts to change, then the effort itself, as far as practice, start, begins to change at the same time. So we start to look deeper inside of ourselves. We kind of reach deeper inside. Where is the effort going to come from? Where are we going to get it from? What's going to motivate us? It's almost like being in a relationship, right? When you fall in love with somebody. Oh, this person is wonderful. You, your heart opens. It's so nice. And these wonderful feelings. And this person is a god or a goddess. And, you know, the bells are all ringing. And everything is wonderful. And after a while, it's who's going to do the dishes? And, you know, and who's going who's gonna to take care of the bills? And, you know, I want sex, but you don't, you know, and all that. I mean, it starts to change. And so where does the motivation to be together, to stay together, to deepen that love, that trust, that bond, where does it come from inside of ourselves? <laughs> we have to kind of dig deeper, you know, and look more honestly inside. Who am I? Who is this other person? What is our relationship together? It's really the same thing with meditation. It's really very, very, very similar. I mean, we have a love relationship with the Buddha and the teachings, you know, or some other teacher. I mean, is it true? There's a real love relationship there. 
you know, but then when you get down to the nitty gritty, it's four o'clock in the morning and the bell rings and you have to get up to sit and your body is tired and you feel drowsy and where's the effort going to come from? Where's the motivation then? You know, the romance starts to fade after a while. You know, where does it all come from? Basically, it comes from love. It comes from a love of ourselves. It comes from that place within ourselves that deeply wants to know the divine, that wants to be free, that knows that to pay attention, to be aware, to open presently to what is skillfully and tenderly and compassionately, that to relate to our life that way, that we sink deeper and deeper and deeper into the space of, of caring, of love, of understanding that lies within inside of ourselves. We learn to trust the process more. And it really is a process that we're going through. This is one thing that I'm seeing more clearly in terms of the unfolding of my own process of my own practice. And I think it has a lot to do with my relationship with Barbara and Aaron and that there are some parallels, for example, in what Barbara experiences and what I experience. And Aaron kind of leading and guiding us through this. Barbara is ahead of me in the process and I'm following and I see kind of the next step that's there in front. And it's really a process that we go through. But for a long time, we may not see the unfolding of our path very clearly. Certainly, at certain times in our path, it becomes very, very obscure. It's like St. John of the Cross, the dark night of the soul. It's like you know, everything, the direction of our life and the way that we thought we were going and how things were going to unfold, it just doesn't happen that way all of a sudden. And sometimes it's because our path starts to veer sharply to the left or to the right. And that's a little bit disconcerting because we would feel a whole lot better if it just went straight the way that we thought it was going to go or the way that we read about, or the way that somebody else's path unfolded. But it doesn't happen that way, because we're each unique in terms of our, who we are as spirits. We're each unique in terms of how our path unfolds. When we talk about the Eightfold Path of the Buddha, that's just a guide. Okay, those are tools and aspects to pay attention to in the development of Vipassana meditation. But in the context of using all of these tools that we're, that we're emphasizing, for each person, their path is going to change and alter considerably because each of us is unique. And sometimes there's a lot of fear of opening to our path and to the changes that are happening. A lot of the fear is because we're just uncertain where it's going to lead us. We don't know. It's the fear of the unknown. Where am I going? We talk about no self, there being no self. 
well, if I don't have a self, then who am I? You know, what will I look like? What will I feel like? How will I think? What will be my interior experience? You know, so opening to these deeper levels of our being can bring up in itself a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt. And doubt is one thing that tends to cut away at effort. That when we get caught and locked into a lot of doubt, like deep, deep uncertainty and doubt, and get caught in it, it tends to cut away at our ability to make a stronger effort. So we become paralyzed. You know sometimes when you don't know what to do, you're really uncertain what, what to do next in your life, what kind of action to take. And you become almost frozen by it. It's like you become paralyzed. It really it makes it difficult to move forward, to make an effort in any kind of direction because we become frozen by the fear and the uncertainty inside of ourselves. But it's all planned this way. <coughs> we don't know how our path is going to unfold because if we knew exactly how it was going to unfold, what was going to happen next and what was going to be at the end of the road, then we would be denied the whole lesson of faith and trust. By not knowing, by not being able to see the past and what's happened in the past in terms of our past lives, by not really understanding why did I choose this incarnation, why did I choose to be a woman, why did I choose to be a man, why did I choose to be heterosexual or homosexual, why did I choose to be born into a particular family or a culture. If we knew all these things and that was all clear to us, it would kind of take the fun out of the incarnation in a certain sense. You know, it's kind of, you have to stumble through the light a bit. And that's what they call it. In Buddhism, there's a term for a human being. A human being is called a puthajana. And a puthajana is a blind worldling, kind of groping. Oh, okay. Puthajana. Okay, <laughs> it's a Buddhist word, puthajana. Uh, it means a suffering worldling. Suffering worldling. 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 A suffering worldling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we are. You know, we're puthajanas. We're we're, we're stumbling through the light. I have a friend named Bo Lezoff, who's the director of the Prison Ashram Project in North Carolina. And he has an album out. When he's not, organ when he's not doing the prison project, he's a rock and roll star. And so he put out an album called Stumbling Towards the Light. That's perfect. That's what we're doing. You know, we're, we're stumbling towards the light. It's out there someplace. And our heart knows it. You know, we know it deep inside. Otherwise, we wouldn't even have the faith to come here. I mean, if there wasn't that level of faith, of trust, of love, of understanding, we wouldn't be here. You wouldn't spend this money to have pain in your legs, <laughs> to be silent. <laughs> I mean, nobody in their right mind would. Well, there's something deeper inside that says, yes. 
this is what you have to do, whether you like it or not. You know, this is what you need to do. And yet there's sometimes tremendous resistance to that. What is that resistance? It's the same resistance sometimes that we meet in our practice at home, where it's time to get up and sit, and part of us knows it's the right thing to do. And another part of ourselves, yes, but wouldn't it be nice to just sleep a little bit longer? You know, or do something different, or make a nice breakfast, or whatever it is. And doing all of those things mindfully and lovingly certainly is meditation. That's not different than meditation at all. But sometimes there are resistances that we find when it's time to come to meditate, whether it's when we ring the bell and there's a schedule, or when it's unscheduled and you, a thought arises, it's time to sit. Sometimes in, 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 in our mind there's the memory of a previous sitting that may not have been quite so pleasant. <laughs> right? Where there was real pain in our legs or our back. It was difficult physically. You know? Or where there was a lot of emotion, a lot of fear, or a lot of negativity that was really uncomfortable. We don't forget consciously or unconsciously, some of those experiences very easily. So when the bell rings or the thought arises, it's time for a sitting, on some level there's the memory of that. Looking at, if you start to feel some resistance to coming in here and sitting, just stop and ask yourself, okay, what is the resistance right now? What am I feeling? What am I experiencing? What am I resisting? Is there something inside? Is it because of a previous sitting? Or is it that we feel as though something is emerging inside and there is some reluctance to being with that? Is it because we find ourselves in the middle of a, a powerful e emotional pattern, like grief or like unworthiness? And we feel that if we go and sit, we're going to move deeper into that pattern. And there's some fear about moving deeper into the pattern because of the intensity of the pattern of the unworthiness or the grief, not knowing how well we'll be able to deal with it, where it's going to take us, where it's going to lead us. All these different kinds of resistances that start to, to come up in relationship to our practice. Sometimes the bell will ring, or the thought about meditation, and we really feel enthusiastic about coming in and sitting. Maybe if we had a really good sitting, a pleasant sitting before. <coughs> And then we're really happy to come back and sit again. Have some more of that. You know, or we feel joyful and loving and open. And it's usually easier to meditate, right? When your heart is open, when you're feeling more loving, the energy field is open. It's easier to meditate. Yet, we can't be fair-weather meditators. Truly, to deepen in this practice, to get the most from Vipassana meditation, it's something that needs to be done quite consistently, as Barbara was speaking about earlier. Continually, consistently, not just during the good times, but also when the times are more difficult. So looking at our effort and our motivation in relation to this as well. Another reason or way that we come to effort and what it's motivated by 
is through wanting to attain and achieve certain things, like certain experiences. And this is an illusion that people oftentimes get over very early on in their meditative career, quote unquote. Because sometimes when people come to retreats, it's like they have the idea, they go to see these wonderful visions and have divine sounds, you know, and all this bliss and joy is going to come. And it well may, and sometimes it does happen more easily and frequently for people at the beginning of their practice. Especially if they come into practice with what we call a beginner's mind that doesn't have many expectations. It's like there's an innocence. We move into it with an innocence and because there's not the mind grasping and clinging and looking for something, wanting something, the mind is in a very, the heart is in a very open, spacious place and all that joy and love and whatever is there. Rapture, bliss is there. That happened to me at the beginning of my practice. Uh-huh. This happened at the beginning of my practice. Like the first week or two I was meditating at this place, it was like my mind was melting, you know, there was all this joy, and I'm thinking, my God, I found it, you know. I'm not going to do anything else the rest of my life. I'm just going to meditate, you know. And then I was talking to a friend, and he said, what's going on in your meditation? And I described what was happening, this rapture. He said, that's it. He said to me, so I thought, wow, I said, I'm on my way to a very distinguished meditative career here, right? (laughs) It didn't last long, and it moved into a real deep cycle of a lot of pain, you know, a lot of anger, a lot of negativity, a lot of fear, just kind of surging up that would last for like two or three days, and then it would subside for half a day, and then it would come up. And because you're meditating all day, it's like it was there all the time. You couldn't get away from it. No matter where you went, it was there. Because you were, there was very, there was no way of distracting yourself from it. And I realized I didn't want to distract myself from it. When I first ordained, I thought to myself, how long, am I, how long am I going to be a monk? Because we don't take vows for life in the Theravadan Buddhist lineage. So I thought, well, having read about the life of the Buddha, that the Buddha practiced um, for about six or seven years before he was enlightened. And um, I figured, well, the Buddha did it in six or seven years, so that's what I'll, that's what I'll do. In six or seven years, I'll ordain for six or seven years, then I'll be enlightened, then I can go back to America and I can live, be a normal person again. Right? <laughs> and in that, there was this tremendous desire to attain enlightenment, because I had read all that the Buddha had attained, and or, you know, I had thought, I had thoughts of what he had attained, what it must have been like. And at the same time that it was very inspiring, there was also created within, within me this whole idea of getting something, attaining something, until I read a line by the Buddha which said that I have attained 
absolutely, absolutely nothing by this unexcelled enlightenment. What he was saying is he didn't attain anything that was not already there inside of himself. It was already there, he just didn't realize it. I once asked this question to Aaron, Aaron, when am I going to get enlightened? He said, you're already enlightened, you just don't know it. <laughs> We're already enlightened, we just don't know it. But what we bring into, medita into meditation and a lot of our effort and motivation is that there's something outside of me which I have to get, right? And it's like the worldly idea of achieving something in life, of, you know, we go to college, we go to graduate school, we have a job, we make money, we collect things, we move on in our career, in our status, whatever, in order to come to a greater and greater place of attainment and achievement in our life. And we bring in that same kind of mind sometimes into meditation, even into a sitting to the next sitting, to one retreat to another, where we're looking for something that we want to experience, or we think that we should be experiencing, that we should have a certain kind of experience other than what we may be experiencing right now. And, and when we look at the Buddhist Eightfold Path, Right understanding is the first step of the Eightfold Path. And the reason that the Buddha put right understanding right at the beginning is that to have an understanding that of the path itself and that there is nothing to attain, to be present in the moment with whatever is, which is what the essence of meditation is, that that is the right understanding. Just to keep coming back to right now to what we're experiencing right now. Even it's, it's as simple, sim simple as hearing something or tasting something, thinking something, feeling a sensation in the body. I mean, what is extraordinary about the breath? It comes and it goes. It's something that's present for us. So, understanding that right effort means to be present with what is and not and to see where there may be the tendency to grasp after to look after to cling after something to see that how that affects us in terms of our effort and our motivation and practice usually what it does is it's like meeting a brick wall the desire to attain something is that brick wall that we move along in our practice, and if that de desire for attainment is strong, at some point we just hit it and we stop. And we can't get any further, because the mind is grasping and clinging. It's wanting. And the Buddha said that the cause, desire is the cause of suffering. That in our mind, grasping and clinging and wanting something, in that very reaching and desire, there is suffering. And this pertains very much to effort and to, and to our meditation practice and our spiritual life in general and how, and how we look at our path. So what is right effort? We'll come back to some questions in just a minute. What is right effort? There was a monk during the Buddhist time who was a musician. He came to the Buddha and he said, Gautama, 
what is the right effort in practice? How do I make the right effort? And so Buddha said, I can't remember his name. He said, you're a musician, right? He said, yes. He said, well, how do you know when your lute, when your stringed instrument is tuned just the way it needs to be tuned, when it has just the right sound, just the right pitch? How do you know that? If you tighten the strings too much, does it have the right sound? Does it have the right pitch? And the monk said, no. If you have the strings too loose, what does it sound like? You know, is it, does it have the right sound? And he said, no, it doesn't have the right sound. It just has to be tuned exactly to the right intensity in order to have the right sound. It's very much the same with our practice and making effort. That if we make too strong an effort, if there's too much, I want this, I want to attain this, I want to have this, if there's too much of that strong desire ring force in terms of what's motivating in our practice, it creates a tension, a tightness. You know, and you see this a lot in certain kinds of meditation retreats. Um, I saw it when I was in Asia with monks, who Western monks, who were so intense. It was like we were much more intense than the Thai monks were. We were gung-ho. Kill the defilements of greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> you know, onward. And it was a lot of competition that was going on. You know, we used to have these hour and a half sittings where we would not move. I would talk about aditan. We would not move for an hour and a half. You just, the aditan before you sit that you're not going to move for an hour and a half. And it's outside in the early morning in the cold weather. And we just sit there and we wouldn't move. And your legs are killing you. And you want to move so bad. But the person next to you is not moving. You know? And you wouldn't dare move because then you lose. You know? And you know, who's the best monk here? And who's the best meditator? You know, it was all this kind of spiritual competition going on. You know, or it could have related to the scriptures where you know, some people really knew the scriptures very well. And there was a competition between the German monks and the American monks. It was like World War I or World War II, just it was just pertaining to, just pertaining to the scriptures. But, you know, there was this kind of one-upmanship. And a lot of it was the force of the mind wanting to attain and achieve, and a kind of effort that was a little bit too tightly wound. You know, it was just too, too intense. I mean, there's stories of some monks just losing it completely because they were so intense and were so f afraid of making a mistake. You know, how fragile we'll become in all of that when we become that tight. Now, there's the opposite to that, which is when we become too loose and too lax. I, I have to admit, I had some difficulty in one of the first retreats that we had here at Sunnyside because there was, as some of you may remember it, there was a lot of hugging and there was a lot of talking and people were doing sign language with, with each other. We said you can't talk. Instead of talking, they were signing because many people knew signing because of Barbara, right? And 
it was a very loose retreat, and I was used to, I would say, more middle-of-the-road meditation retreats. And so I'm thinking, you can't call this a meditation retreat, you know, etc. And I saw how much I wanted to control the situation. It's like, oh my God, it'll completely unravel. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll, this, you know, I mean, it won't even be a meditation retreat. And I, I, had to wa- I had to watch that. I had to look at it. And I've gotten much better about it, as you may have noticed, right? But there was a little bit more talking going on this afternoon. And I, I'm, I mean, I was talking to Peter and John myself. So I'm part of probably what was contributing to it. But I noticed that there was more talking, more laughing. And it was a lighter kind of feeling, right? And that can be wonderful because I really do think it's important to have joy in a meditation retreat. It really is. To have a, a sense of lightness, you know, of community, of well-being, of connectedness. That, that really is very, very supportive. And I think that your ability to go deeper inside of yourselves, as many of you have, is a result of the trust that you feel in being with each other. You know, like the introduction that we have and hearing about other people and just the love that has formed in this sangha, in this community over the number of retreats that we've had and many of you have been coming back to retreat after retreat, that that really contributes to the sense of people being able to trust each other in this situation. And so you can go deeper. So you can touch more deeply those painful places inside of yourself because you have that trusting environment. So having that love and that connectedness, that trust is extremely important. But then when I was, I was people were starting to talk, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's only Friday. We've got two more days of the retreat. And it's going to unravel. And I started to see myself getting anxious about it again and starting to feel fear. And with that fear, the desire to want to control, to control the situation in some way. And sometimes our effort is motivated by that desire to control. Sometimes we act, we do things in our family, at work, even in terms of our meditation practice, that we try to control it too much. And that control comes from fear. It's like sometimes people hold on to a meditation object, even like the breath, very, very tightly holding on to it because they're fearful of losing control of it. That if they let go of this peace, of this serenity, this harmony that they feel, that their life is just going to disintegrate. And people actually experience this. Or people will live in meditation retreat centers for long periods of time you know, because they get so much from being at the center and their life changes so much, but then they find it difficult to go out into the world because they want to hold on to that sense of peace and harmony that they feel. It's one reason why people keep coming back to retreats over and over and over again is because they want to reclaim that kind of feeling inside of themselves. And yet, if we're going to be truly free, we have to be able to a mind that is making an effort and at the same time is not holding on to anything, is a mind that is going to be moving in the direction of right effort.
it's like when we're sitting and we experience something that is pleasant. We have a pleasant experience. See the tendency to want to hold on to that pleasant experience or feeling in some way. When we have an experience that is more unpleasant, can we develop the same kind of equanimity towards that which is unpleasant, whether it be a memory or a feeling, a sensation in the body, can we develop the same kind of equanimity with what is unpleasant as what is pleasant in our life? That same kind of, that same kind of mindfulness and being with it, yet not holding on to it. If we can develop that kind of effort in our practice, then it will develop an openness to be with what is, not just in the context of the retreat situation, but throughout our life, that whatever it is that we meet, that we're able to meet it with that kind of spaciousness and understanding within ourselves. It's something, effort is something that we have to learn about individually, because it's going to change in our practice. Sometimes we have to make a very strong effort especially when we're feeling lazy or feeling more lethargic. It requires more effort. The path itself, moving into it in a greater way, will consume a lot of energy, will require a lot of effort. It's like a relationship. If a relationship is going to deepen, if it's going to become something that's really nourishing, it's going to require a lot of energy and a lot of effort. It's the same thing with meditation practice. Yet, it's a kind of effort and it's a kind of hastening in terms of the effort that we make that we're hastening along, but we're doing that mindfully. In Buddhism, we talk about the preciousness of the human birth. And the Buddha gives this analogy that a human incarnation happens as frequently as a blind turtle that's living in the sea. And there's a little round hoop floating on the ocean, the surface of the ocean. And every hundred years, the, the, tur the blind turtle comes out to the surface of the water and happens to move his head. And at some point, meets the hoop, so the head comes through the hole of the, of the wooden loop. The chance of that happening is the chance of taking a human birth. Now, I don't know if it's as drastic or as chancy as that, but what it, what it is a demonstration of is how precious this human birth is and not to waste it, to make an effort through our practice that takes full advantage of the situation of being human and finding the Dharma. And it's something to reflect upon about how precious that is. So making an effort and hastening in that effort 
without, with right understanding, without the mind trying to grasp onto anything, trying to attain anything. An effort that allows us to be fully present in the moment with whatever is our experience is a helpful way to, to practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.